All right, so last week we started chapter 17. And uh, if you remember, we, we concentrated mainly on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus takes uh, three of the disciples up, and there Moses and Elijah show up. Uh, it, they represent the law and the prophets. And in a lot of ways, I think sometimes we look at this event and we go, wow, that's pretty amazing that, that the disciples got to see that. But it's, it, it's also important we understand why Moses and Elijah are there, that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Moses and Elijah are specifically there to talk with Jesus about what's about to take place in Jerusalem, that Jesus will be crucified and then three days later rise from the dead. And, and so this is all that what was going on there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter, one of the guys who's there, decides that he wants to join the conversation and starts kind of just babbling. And I think it's Mark's gospel that says, because he did not know what to say. And he just <laughs> starts nervous talking. Uh, and God the Father speaks from this cloud that is glowing in their midst and surrounding them and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Also important, not only is he saying, Peter, be quiet, <laughs> listen. He's, he's saying the law and the prophets are fulfilled. The one you need to listen to now is my son. That Jesus is doing exactly what he's supposed to he is on his way to Jerusalem to do exactly what he's called to do, all of these things. And we must hear him more than anything else above all the noise of this world. Now, as we get into part two, um, to me, this really, the second half of this chapter uh, shows some very real things about our Christian walk. That here they've been up on the mountaintop, this great experience. And as they come down the mountain, as we'll see, it's not the great experience that's waiting for them. And, and I think as we look at it, we can relate with what that's like, right? That, <laughs> that very often we can have these great mountaintop experiences, but we know that the valley is what's coming next. And so uh, I think some very applicable things. So let's pray, and we'll get into the rest of the chapter. God, we thank you uh, just for the way you work in our very real lives, Lord, that you're not afraid to meet us where we are. You're not afraid to uh, confront us on things that we need to change. And Lord, we give you permission to do all of that today. Help us to have ears to hear your voice as we study your word. Holy Spirit, apply these things to us. Show us how we are to live them out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be starting at verse 14, chapter 17. Verse 14 says, And when they had come down to the multitude, man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And have brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And then Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. But Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. 
And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Um, again, I like to kind of imagine this scene in my mind and picture myself there, right? So with the disciples and Jesus coming down the mountain. And, and Matthew gives us a little different view. If you look at uh, Mark and Luke, they paint this picture of absolute chaos that Jesus is returning to. He's been on the mountaintop there with Moses and Elijah and his father speaking and all of these things. And he comes down, and what's been taking place is this man has brought his son uh, to the disciples, and they were not able to cast this demon out. On top of that, the scribes have also shown up, and they start this argument with the disciples. So Jesus comes down, and here's the group, and there's just chaos and arguing and nonsense all taking place. And I believe it's Luke's gospel where he just confronts the scribes and goes, what are you talking to them about? Why are you even talking to my disciples is kind of the idea. And, and then this guy comes up to Jesus and goes, you've got to do something with my son. You're right. So it, it, it's a very crazy, chaotic scene. And to me, like I said, I think this describes very much of what it's like to have our walk with the Lord. We get these occasional mountaintop experiences, and they're amazing, and we love them, you know. And don't get me wrong, they are important, but then you come down the mountain and you find conflict and spiritual warfare and everyday life, and... uh, and it, it can be really discouraging. It can be, we can start to feel like, what's wrong with me? How can I have this great experience with the Lord an hour ago or five minutes ago? And now all of a sudden, I'm right in the midst of just chaos in my life. And maybe it's all internal. Maybe it isn't even outside things. It's just things in our mind, things in our heart. But I find very often it's, it's also things in life. It's just bills that need to be paid, and this needs to happen, and I forgot about this issue, and all these other things. And, and I think it's very easy for us to start to feel guilt, guilty, like, Lord, how am I missing it? How am I not in your presence like I was a little while ago all the time? And to be honest, there's books, there's seminars, there's teachers out there that will tell you, hey, you should be living a mountaintop life. That's a lie. I would rather live on the mountaintop, to be honest. Who wouldn't? But that's, that's not what we're called to do. And, it, and it, I think part of us, we know that in our heads, right? But, but again, when we're in that place, when we've gone from the mountaintop to the valley, we can blame ourselves and go, where did I go wrong? Lord, where am I missing you? We need to understand that this is part of our calling. The mountaintops are important. They play an important role. They're a great time of encouragement and being built up. But the reason we're built up there is that we can take what we get on the mountaintop down to the valley where the people are. Because if we try and stay on the mountain, we find it's us. It's just us. Maybe it's us four and no more. 
But you can't have too many people on the mountaintop or they're going to mess it up, right? And so we become very isolated if we try and live that life. We're called to bring the good news, and the good news needs to go into the valley. It's where the broken are. And, and it's that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ to bring hope and love right into the chaos of this world. When we understand that that's our calling, then we're not discouraged. In fact, when we're on the mountaintop, we can kind of plan for it. It's like, man, I love being here. This is a great time. But Lord, I know what's next, right? And we can just know that this is part of who we are and and that we're called to be in a world that is loud and it's messy and it's chaotic and things don't always go as we planned. But that's how Jesus chose to arrive here. I mean, we see it in this little example that he goes from the mountaintop back down to the, the chaos that's happening with all the people. But to a much greater degree, imagine what it was like to be in the absolute beauty and peace of heaven. Everything is orderly. Everything is right. Everything's as it should be. And he left his throne there to come and be with us. Talk about <laughs> entering into the chaos on purpose. But it's what he's cho- chosen to do, right? And in the same way, that shows us what our calling is, at least part of our calling. Yeah, we get these great times, these mountaintop experiences, but man, we need to know that we are called to go back in to the chaos. And like I said, it gives us, it helps us prepare our hearts when we're on the mountaintop. Now, what I'm not saying, and I think this is important, because again, the way we can kind of twist things up is that we can start getting blessed. The Lord's doing something great, and, we're, and we know it's Him, and it's that type of mountaintop experience. Or maybe it's a season we're in, like, man, everything's going so good right now. And we can start to get fearful and go, oh no, that means that something bad's going to happen. <laughs> it's good now, but it's, He's only blessing me now because something horrible is about to take place. And we can start getting paranoid. Again, that's, that's not the character of the Lord. That's letting our own fears start to drag us away and make, actually rip us off in the moment that he's blessing us. But I think we can get our hearts prepared to know we are being filled up in order to give out. That's what so much of what he's doing in us is about. Although we get the benefit, although we enjoy it and we're blessed by it, it's to bless others. Spiritual gifts, I think, are are greatly misunderstood in that way because they're seen a lot of times by people as like, well, I can do this. I can prophesy or I've been given the gift of discernment. And, And that's great. But all spiritual gifts are given to give away. They're not given to keep. They're not given for my pride. They're not given for my entertainment. They're given to give away. Right? And, and, and so are all these other things. Those mountaintop experiences, those times with the Lord, those times that you're in the Word of God, man, it just seems to jump off the page and directly into the depths of your heart. It's to give away. Now, Jesus has gone from, like I said, this great time. And he comes down the mountain, and there's this father of the possessed boy that just 
seems to rush at Jesus is kind of the picture you get. And again, it kind of also reminds us what's taking place there. It's chaotic. He came there for his son to be healed, to have this demon cast out, and it's turned into this argument with the scribes and this group. And he, as soon as he sees Jesus, he just makes a beeline for him. And uh, there's a misunderstanding that takes place here. I've had this discussion with people in the past because it says that his son's an epileptic. And people go, oh, well, see, this was, you know, just an example that people back in that day believed that all epilepsy was demon possession. Not true at all. In fact, this is really saying the opposite. He, the father's saying, look, he's epileptic, but there's also this demonic factor. And we see that other times, right? They didn't believe that people, everyone that, with epilepsy was demon possessed or everyone that was blind was demon possessed. But we've seen other examples where people who are deaf or can't speak or are blind because of demon possession. I don't understand how that works, but this is, that's the case here. The effects that this demon has on this young man um, are showing up as seizures and he's falling in the fire. Um, and I think that's important because if we look at it and go, well, this is just the superstition of the day. First of all, we're diminishing the miracle that takes place. The other thing is, is that we're saying that Jesus isn't honest about what he's doing. Because if he's healing someone of epilepsy, but he's just placating to their superstition, then he's lying to them. Again, that's not Jesus. He knows that there's a demonic force, and he's going to deal with it. Um, And not just any demon. This is a demon that has some authority and has some power. Uh, And we see that in Scripture, that just like there is a chain of authority in heaven, there is a chain of authority in hell. And, and there's a, people kind of go take that in crazy directions. I don't think we need to worry about it because no matter what amount of authority a demon has, my Jesus has more. And, and so we don't need to worry about this. We don't need to, you know, there are people who think you need to know the name of a demon in order to cast it out. You know, that is craziness. Jesus knows their name and he knows how to handle them. And here's a good example of that because the, the disciples have been doing all they can to no avail. And we, Jesus pretty much just shows up and goes, out, and it's done. Right? There's no struggle. There's, <laughs> he just takes care of it. And I, and I love how easily he does. But it is interesting because in Matthew 10, Jesus gave the authority to the disciples to cast out demons when he sent them out. And so they have. And, and so they weren't out of line when this father came up. This situation, they understood it was demonic and that this demon needed to be cast out. And, and they were unable to. But they'd been given authority. Again, they, they'd done this before. But it, this demon was strong enough that he was able to resist them. Um. Now the Father does the right thing, brings him right to Jesus. And Jesus' response to the disciples and to the crowd is a little unexpected. In verse 17, where he says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Um, I don't believe that this was directed toward the father or the boy. I think it was directed toward the chaos. <laughs> Again, Jesus comes down, and here's this argument that's breaking out. They've kind of forgotten about this boy and his father in this big argument that they're having with the scribes. And I don't think Jesus is angry, but I do think he is weary. And, and again, you can 
Read that however you want. We don't know the tone that it was said in, but we know that Jesus just got done having a conversation with Moses and Elijah about his death. And now he's there with his, his guys, and I think he's just like, ah, man, <laughs> how long? You know, he knows his time is near. It's not that far away, about a month at this point. And, and his time is, is drawing to a close, and in some ways I could understand if he felt like not much is changing. Not much has, has happened. The disciples are arguing about the same things they were arguing about at the beginning. And so, again, Jesus speaks to this demon. The boy's instantly cured. I don't know what the disciples tried, but I think we get the idea uh, from what we read here that they had tried everything they knew. They had worked pretty hard at this. Whatever that looks like, I don't know. But they didn't just make a a half-hearted effort to cast this demon out. I don't know if they got in a line and took turns or if they ganged up on him or whatever they did. They thought it was a lot because there was enough that they came to Jesus privately afterwards and go and ask, why didn't it work? Why couldn't we cast the demon out? They didn't ask in the group, right? They waited until it was just them and Jesus. What's, why, it, you said we could and then we couldn't and he didn't leave. And I think they did a lot, but all of their efforts failed. Jesus actually gives them two answers, but they are very closely connected. They they point to the same thing. Jesus answered to them in verse 20, so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, and for assuredly I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the first reason that they couldn't do it was unbelief. Again, I think we misunderstand what Jesus is saying there. Because we get the wrong idea about faith itself. That too often we get the idea that faith is about us working something up. Like we've got to have an emotional experience where we have to drive out all of our unbelief until we're just so convinced that it's going to go the way that we think and that that's what faith really looks like. It's actually not faith. What they were doing, in fact, I, I can picture kind of what took place, and maybe it's just my own opinion, because Jesus had given them authority, because they had done this before, and they had enough faith to actually try to cast this demon out. I mean, that would seem to be the mustard seed. They were trying to faithfully do what they'd been empowered to do by the Lord. Um, while they may have stepped up with confidence, the problem wasn't a matter wasn't that they didn't have faith. It was that they'd put their faith in the wrong things. And I think, again, this is the mistake we make, that trying to work up that emotional experience, trying to work our faith up so that we just have no question at all that it's going to go our way. What we're putting our faith in is our faith. We're putting our faith in ourselves. My ability my uh, you know, ability to drive out all doubt, or whatever it might be. And so the disciples, it isn't the amount of faith, it's where they placed it. That if we step up with confidence, if we step up with, with overconfidence that is in ourselves, we will fail.
Faith in my ability, my experience really isn't faith at all. In fact, if it's in me, it's actually unbelief. And I believe this is what Jesus is pointing to. It's unbelief in what his word says about me. That if I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm strong enough, smart enough, able enough, godly enough, whatever it might be, then I'm contradicting what his word says about me. When we understand we have nothing to offer, then we have to put all of our faith in him. I don't have any ability. I don't have any strength. I certainly can't overcome a demon. I can't overcome spiritual adversaries of any kind. I have nothing. What little shred of faith that I do have, that little mustard seed of faith, I'm going to put 100% of that in Jesus' ability. And then mountains will move. Right? So I don't think the disciples weren't confident, but confidence and faith are not the same thing at all. Now the second reason, or the second thing he points to, why they weren't able to, and this could seem very random, but, it, but they are connected together. In verse 21, he says, that, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So first he says it's because of unbelief, and then it almost on the side he's like, oh, but this one's a special case. Again, we misunderstand what he's saying there. And I've, I've talked with people that think of prayer and fasting as like some guarantee that God has to move. Like if you really, really want something, then not only are you going to pray, but you're going to fast. And it's almost like God's like, well, now I see how serious you are here. You know, you're going to have whatever you want. When it comes to spiritual warfare... I've seen people treat it as though this is like the silver bullet. This is like the, the magic on, on spiritual warfare. I knew one ministry team that when they would go out, they would make sure that one person had been in prayer and fasting all the day before, that in case something came up, they'd be ready for everything. Well, I like the idea of that, but again, I think it miss, misses the point of what Jesus is saying here. Prayer and fasting have a very specific point, and it isn't the magic key to spiritual warfare. Prayer and fasting are meant to bring us closer to the Lord. To cause us to realize that we do not live by bread alone. To put our flesh under subjection to our spirit. And above that even the Holy Spirit. Not to make us more powerful, not to make us more effective, to make us more in tune with Jesus himself. It's the building of a relationship. It is, again, admitting our weakness and our inability, making us 100% dependent upon him. That's the point of prayer and fasting. And so the very thing that he was pointing to in their unbelief, he's pointing to in prayer and fasting. Again, not just a one-time event, not just like, hey, we got some heavy stuff coming up. Let's make sure we're doing some prayer and fasting. It's an ongoing type of relationship that we're people of prayer, just having a conversation with our Lord all the time. 
that we're people who are willing to deny our flesh. And we fast, whether that's from food or TV or entertainment or the internet or whatever it might be, that we're like, hey, something, I just feel like I need to put this away for a while. I need to use this as an opportunity to draw nearer to the Lord. It's easy to have faith in someone we know and understand. And prayer and fasting allow us to know and understand the Lord more. Right? That's, that's what this is about. Drawing us, our hearts, our lives, our minds, in line with Jesus Christ. That makes demons tremble. All right, verse 22. It says, Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus, anticipating him, said, anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. And Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, Lest we offend them, go to the sea and cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take it and give it to them for me and you. I love that story. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> this whole thing, and really it starts this, this just little side note, really, of Jesus again telling his disciples about what's next. Now, something's changed in the last few chapters. Whereas before Jesus would allude to the fact that he would die, they didn't understand. Is he speaking metaphorically? Not quite sure what it meant. But now he's made it clear. It is a physical death. And and the disciples get that part. No longer are they asking, what does he mean by his death? They know that he's speaking very clearly that he's going to die. The part they keep missing is that almost every time that he speaks of his death, he also speaks of his resurrection. And we know that they're not understanding that. I don't know if they just tuned it out, or they didn't get it, or they thought maybe the the resurrection was somehow metaphorical. But we know it because it says in verse 23, um, excuse me, just after that, in verse 23, it says, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. See, if they got that Jesus was going to rise, if they knew what that meant, while they still would be worried they wouldn't be exceedingly sorrowful. The idea there is, is, is sorrow without hope, that there's no hope in, in the type of sorrow they had. And so the disciples are, are just unsure what's going to take place, except that Jesus keeps speaking of his death. Now they move on from there, they go to Capernaum. And this uh, event happens. Those who receive the temple tax come to Peter and they say, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? This was a Roman tax that had been instituted in Israel um, and and at this time was only in Israel. Later on, they would start to expand it out and and use it to collect taxes in other other temples. But right now, at this point, it was only for the Jews 
that had this temple tax. And if you, as you can imagine, it was not well received, right? <laughs> not only are they under Roman oppression, now they have to pay a tax because they go to the temple. It wasn't to fix up the temple. It wasn't for upkeep. It wasn't to pay for the janitors or any of those things that happened in the temple. It was like, oh, you go to the temple, you have to pay tax. And, and it had become this hugely divisive thing. Some people simply did it because they didn't want to fight with Rome they, or any of those things. But it had become kind of a rallying post for people to stand up against Rome. We're not going to pay our te- temple tax. We're not going to do this. It was collected by Romans, but it was also collected like other tax collectors. They were Israelites working for Rome, right? And it was collected uh, around the time of Passover. Usually they'd start a month or two before and sometimes go about a month after. But when everyone came in for Passovers, when they got their main collection for this tax, this was absolutely an unfair, unjust tax. That's all taxes. You actually beat me to it. I was going to say that then and now, taxes stink, right? Nobody likes paying taxes. I've never met one person who goes, you know what? I just love paying taxes. Even the ones that, that have a certain amount of sense to them, right? Roadways and infrastructure need to be paid for, need to be upkept. But we also know how quickly the funds for that get diverted to other places that they shouldn't and overtaxing happens and, and pretty soon it's, it's frustrating and unjust and all of these things. Then and now, it's the same thing. People rally around the in, injustice of taxes against the government and take their stand. And so when this question is asked, it isn't just about a tax. They're asking whose side is Jesus on? Now, Peter, probably just not wanting to get into a conflict, they go, does Jesus pay temple tax? And he goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, well, I don't know. And then he goes back, and Jesus hits him with this thing. And it's beautiful. I just love the way that Jesus handles this. Verse 25, he asks him the question, from whom do the kings of the earth take customer tax? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, of course. The prince doesn't pay taxes. His children don't pay taxes. It's from the strangers, the nameless, faceless masses out there. And in doing this, Jesus says, then the sons are free. He's he's declaring it, right? It's obvious. The sons are free. This unjust tax from a corrupt government, Jesus is saying, Not just the son speaking of himself, because he could. We're talking about the temple tax. And he could just go, "Uh, I'm the son. I don't pay taxes. (laughs) I literally am the son of the king. But he uses the plural sons, which is a reference to all worshipers. Therefore, the sons are free. Right? This unjust tax of a corrupt government, Jesus is saying that The worshipers are not required to pay. But then he says, but let's pay it anyway. And I love that. (laughs) Because if you want to go by the letter of the law, Jesus is saying, no, it's not required. But we're going to pay it anyway. Why? Lest we offend them. This is important. And I know this keeps coming up. It's not something I'm, I'm... 
meaning to bring up every Sunday or planning to bring up every Sunday, but I think this is a great example of it, lest we offend them. Jesus was not afraid of a fight. He's about to enter into the greatest fight in all the universe. He wasn't afraid to stand up for right and oppose those things that are wrong. He wasn't afraid of corrupt leaders. He wasn't afraid of dealing with social issues. So he's not avoiding this. But he also wants it to be clear that people are more important than all of that. Are there things that are unfair? Corrupt? Absolutely. Reasons to be upset with the government? Absolutely. Yes. But don't let your politics ruin your testimony. And I'm seeing it all the time on both sides. The people's politics are driving others away. And it's so easy to feel self-righteous about that. You go, well, they just can't handle the truth. And again, both sides feel exactly the same. We cannot let politics, whether about taxes or bills or any of those things, ruin our testimony. What is the value of winning a political argument and losing the opportunity to see somebody come to Christ? Not to say there aren't important things to vote on, to consider. Not there aren't important things to take a stand on, but they must be put in the priority of eternity. Because as much as we love our country and the the great rights and abilities we have within it, it will crumble to dust and be forgotten like it never existed. Like every kingdom before it. No one will stand around heaven talking about how great America was. No one. It'll be forgotten with Babylon and Egypt. It will be gone, never to be remembered. But the people we interact with will be right there with us. Keep it in perspective. Again, Jesus isn't saying, oh, this tax is fair. It's okay. Let's just do it because we should. He's saying, no, it's not fair. It's not right. We have no need to do it. But let's do it anyway. Lest we offend them and drive them away. Yeah, we can make all of our points. We can say all of our arguments. We can quote all these different political people that we want, but are we doing it to drive people away rather than bring people to Christ? Man, we got to be careful. As far as taxes, you know what? We trust God to provide for all of our needs, for our family, to provide food, to keep the lights on, and He is faithful over and over again. He will pay our taxes too. Right? Why do we think that somehow that's going to stop? Like, well, I I believe he's going to put food on the table, but I don't know about if he's going to pay this bill. In fact, I love the crazy way that he does this this time with Peter. Hey, Peter, you should go fishing. What? And the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and in there will be a coin. You go pay a tax with that. that. (laughs) I love it. Can he provide? Absolutely. And here's an example of how crazy he can provide. 
And I always wonder what the backstory is on that. It's going to be one of those questions I have in heaven. Like, how did that coin end up in that fish's mouth? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the, the very tax collector that was there went fishing that morning and dropped a coin and officiated it. Now he's paying taxes for Peter and Jesus. Whatever it might be. Again, we see this whole thing. And again, if you kind of look at it, the beginning of chapter 17 and how it flows together in the second half, coming down from the mountain brings us right back into the chaos. But I think we are, I know, we are called to be people that are living in the chaos but not creating it. And there's a movement that's happening, that's happened for a while now, that that the church is somehow supposed to create this political chaos. That is not true. The church has one purpose, and it is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. When we do that, politics will change. But it doesn't work in reverse. We need to be those that are going to the mountaintop, getting filled up, choosing to go back to the chaos because that's where the people are. But the lost and the broken and the oppressed and, and the people that are drowning in oppression, they're literally dying to know what we know. And we're the ambassadors. We're the ones that get to go and bring the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. May we be those that are like desiring to get closer and closer in prayer, in fasting, and be good ambassadors of an eternal kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.